This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Today we are going to be continuing in our series uh, from the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn to uh, chapter 1 of Luke, we're going to start in um, verse 57. We're going to get through... Lord willing, verse 80 today. Um, Join me as I pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, We are thankful for the opportunity that you have given us to worship the risen Christ. We ask that you would give us hearts today predisposed to humility, hearts that are longing for your will to be done rather than our own, Um, hearts that are longing for the future glory of your coming kingdom. We ask these things, Father, in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. So our our theme for today's sermon, as you probably have uh, figured out, is um, "Come Thou Long, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." Uh, this is this is an Advent hymn, and uh, I mean the word Advent means coming, right there at the beginning of the hymn, "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." Uh, and this is our last Sunday of the Advent season, so it is appropriate that we would. Uh, have this as our as our theme today, and of course, you know everybody in here knows Jesus probably wasn't actually born on December twenty fifth, although maybe he was. <laughs> One in three hundred and sixty five chance. Um, so it's it's not like it's that bad of odds actually. But um, uh, talk to me after the service if you want a history lesson on why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. I thought about, you know, spending half the sermon talking about that, but um, I'm going to spare you all. And, uh, but regardless of when Jesus was born, um, this time of year seems as good a time as any to celebrate the fact that uh, God himself became man, that to set aside a time in which we can celebrate Jesus' incarnation and birth seems an appropriate thing to do. And this is the time of year that we have been given to do that. Um, and so I think we should, I think we should celebrate that with, uh, celebrate that with, with joy. Um, Christmas is probably, I mean, probably my favorite, favorite time of year. Um, and, but I know it's a hard time of year for, for, for many of us, but even so, we don't look at our own circumstances. We look at what God has done. And I think today's text is going to uh, help us see what God has done. Today we're going to be looking at um, not the birth of Jesus, uh, but the birth of John the Baptist. Um, but as with the entire scripture, right? 
the birth of John the Baptist isn't really about the birth of John the Baptist. This text is about the birth of John the Baptist, but ultimately, with the entire Bible, it's about Jesus. And so today, um, with the Lord's help, we're going to, we're going to look at how this text uh, points, us, uh, points us to Jesus. So let's, let's start in um, verse 57 here. The, the text that we're going to be looking at kind of has two, two parts to it. It's got a narrative part uh, in which we see John the Baptist actually being born. And then we have a, 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 a prophetic utterance of sorts by Zechariah, John's, John's father. So we're going to kind of look at each one in, in turn. Um, so let's look at verse 57. We'll just read this first part together. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Um, this is, I think, this is a, an interesting passage of Scripture because it it asks us to consider the, the, the question of what's in a name. And names aren't just, you know, for us, a name's a name. You know, some of our children have names we like. Some of our children have names we just, you know, kind of liked at once, once upon a time. Uh, and then... But these names, these names communicate something to the, um, to the people. Zechariah which is what John should have been named, right? Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Um, John means the Lord has been gracious. The Lord has remembered and the Lord has been gracious. Um, I think this is, you know, this, this text actually reminds me a little bit of, of when uh, Claire was, when it, whenever, before Claire was born. Uh, we didn't really know what we were going to name her. I can't remember exactly when we settled on Claire, but we were throwing out some names here and there. And do um, you have those family members who when you say, oh, I'm thinking about this name, they look at you and they say, oh, you like that? You know, it's like just kind of this is, you know, not scriptural, but I think it's good advice. Don't be that person, right? <laughs> if anybody tells you what they plan to name their child, you know, don't wince and ask if, do you like that? You know, um, that's, that's not appropriate. Uh, and, and that was why we decided after Claire was born to never let anybody know what our children's names were going to be until they were born, right? We kept, we kept them secret, um, so, because if we would have said, well, we're going to name her Evangeline, they would have been like, how do you spell that, right? Like, what, what, is, what, is, what kind of name is that? Um, so, I, I feel like, as I'm reading this text, I just, I see, um, 
poor Elizabeth saying, uh, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, I'm, I'm assuming these were her in-laws, right? And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. You know, that's, that's, that's not going to work. Um, and then they went to Zechariah and they asked him, looking for confirmation, what, what should we call this child? Let's call him the Lord is remembered, just like, just like we call you. Um, and I think that this, you know, this kind of confirms this text uh, here, you know, that they made signs asking him what he wanted to be called. I think this kind of confirms that Zechariah is not just, uh, not just muted by the Lord's judgment, but he's, but he's also, but he's also deaf. Um, and because when Zechariah confirms the name John, uh, it says, uh, and they all wondered. And so, you know, they're surprised. How could he have known what Elizabeth had said? Um, how could, you know, like it's a surprising thing that they w- wouldn't have somehow communicated ahead of time what this child's name is going to be. Um, but the thing I think is interesting about this is they all wondered, like this is some kind of miracle. He knows what the child, he knows what his wife wants to name the child. And if they thought that was something wondrous, then it's like right after this is where, where the real wonder comes because the, the, they all wonder before his mouth is opened. And then immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Um, and at this point, they realize the real miracle has taken place. And fear came on all their neighbors. Uh, And then all these things are talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. This might sound a little bit like gossip, but I think what these neighbors who are fearing are doing is wholly appropriate. When you see something miraculous, you should tell people about it. Um, What does the Bible continuously refer to miracles as? It doesn't really call them miracles. It calls them signs and wonders. And what is a sign? Is a sign the thing in and of itself? The sign is always something that points to something else, right? You're driving down the road, big red stop sign, you're like, oh, that's a pretty color and a nice shape. It's not there for its own sake, is it? It's there to cause a thing in you. The sign is meaningless unless it causes the thing to happen in you. And what we see here is we we see a sign and a wonder that it's something that points to something else, right? We've got like multiple miracles on top of each other here. First, Zechariah was mute and deaf and now he's not, right? That's probably the one that people are really startled about at the moment. He also knew the kid's name ahead of time. Wow, you know, that, that was wondrous. But then there's the other, like the really big miracle that seems to get overshadowed by the muteness and the deafness, which is a baby boy has been born to, children, um, to parents who are so old that they should not be able to have a baby boy, right? This is, there's, there are multiple signs here. And the question is, what should they, what are they actually pointing to? 
Because the miraculous birth of this baby boy isn't actually the point of the text. It's meant to point us to something. It's meant to point us to something bigger that's going on in salvation history. Um, when we see the miraculous happen, it should cause us. It should cause us awe of who God is, but it also should cause us praise for who He is. But it all, should also cause a desire to communicate that to, to other people. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole question uh, because I don't really know the answer about how miracles happen today or whether they happen today. I know we have some people in the church who believe in the cessation of certain miraculous gifts, and I know we have some people in the church who are much more open to those miraculous gifts continuing into our current age. Um, whichever side of that debate you fall on, you should channel those signs and wonders through the gospel, right? God doesn't give us miraculous gifts for the sake of miraculous gifts. He didn't give Elizabeth and Zechariah a boy for the sake of Elizabeth and Zechariah to have a boy, although that's a good and wonderful thing. But there wasn't anything wrong with them without a baby boy, was there? The scripture at the beginning of the uh, text says that they were a righteous couple. There's nothing wrong with them, right? He blesses them with a boy not because they needed the boy, but because the boy points to what God is doing in salvation history. And ultimately, this is going to be what John's uh, purpose is. The crowd understands this implicitly, right? It says there in verse 66, what then will this child be? They know it doesn't stop here. They know we shouldn't just clap and say, God gave Zachariah and Elizabeth a child. Isn't he a generous God? They know it's going to be pointing to something bigger that's yet to, yet to come. And when we think about the miracles of the New Testament, when we think about the miracles that God performed in the Old Testament, when we think about the, uh, what miraculous events we have experienced, whether in our hearts or in the world today, we should always be thinking to ourselves, how does this testify to what God is doing in salvation? And how can I tell other people about it? Um, I remember there's a, uh, there's a passage in, um, I'm a big fan of Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo actually there was a woman in his congregation, you know, this is 1,500 plus years ago. There's a woman in his congregation who said she had had a miracle take place, but she hadn't told anybody about it. And he told her, as long as you keep a miracle to yourself, you're living in sin. You need to share what God has done for you um, and for God's people. So what they're implicitly asking is, I think, in this text, what, what will this child be? I think they're asking, could this be the Messiah? Um, 
And we actually see, this is like a little bit of sprinkling. The rumors start traveling through Judea, letting people realize something different is taking place right now. These, these rumors are circulating. Miraculous births taking place. This is not too far from the same part. This is like in the neighborhood of Bethlehem, where six months later, you're going to have some shepherds who say, a bunch of angels appeared to us in the middle of the night, gave us this message, and what you're, what you're going to have is another round of rumors going around saying, what is God doing right now? And so, by the, you know, then 30 years later, when Jesus starts his ministry, the people are prepared. The people know that something should be happening soon because we've seen these seeds planted um, through these miraculous births taking place. But this, this sign isn't really just a hint. Um, John's birth isn't really just a hint that something is going on. It's more like it's a sign, but it's a big flashing neon sign. Um, this, is, this is something new. And Zechariah, filled with God's Spirit, explains what that sign is pointing to. He explains that this sign is pointing to not that his baby boy is going to be the Messiah, but that something greater is coming. Um, the, the Messiah is coming um, from the house of, of David. So let's... Um, so let's look at the second half. Let's look at what Zechariah uh, says after his tongue has been loosened. So starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesying, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and that the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us, uh, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, this text is called, um, traditionally it's called the Benedictus because of that first word, um, blessed. So when you translate the text into Latin, and for a thousand years, the Christian church just used the Latin translation of the, the New Testament, um, that, uh, that first word, benedictus, kind of became the title of what was considered to be uh, Zachariah's song here. It's kind of mirroring Mary's song that we saw um, saw last week, uh, the mag what we call the Magnificat, right? Um, but the um, this is not so much a song, actually. Uh, we want to call it a song because Mary's Mary's that we talked about last week looks much more like a song as far as the way it the the way the structures uh, 
laid out. Um, Zechariah here isn't so much singing as just making a prophetic utterance. It's like, it's just pouring out of him. If you, if you look at the, uh, the, the text you've got in front of you, um, there are not a lot of periods in here. And in fact, you could punctuate this whole thing from verse 68 to uh, 79 as one big long sentence. Uh, it's like he's just, the, the words are just pouring out. Um, and, and in fact, it, as you get down to around like verse 73, 74, you're like, who's doing what now? Because he's just like, he's just one clause after another, after another, after another. Um, and so we see that there's a, little bit of a, there's a little bit of a difference here in tone. Whereas Mary seems to be kind of like singing about what God is going to be doing, Zachariah is just kind of letting it all spill out. Um, and Mary's song last week talks about how God is in the process of taking the world and turning it upside down. Um, the, you know, if you flip over and just uh, look at it... Um, Verse 51, he scattered the proud, right? Um, He's 52, he brought down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted those of humbled estate. He filled the hungry with good things. Um, The rich he has sent away empty. Every single thing about this world regime and Mary's song, it's getting subverted. This is what God is in the process of doing right now. Um, Zachariah's got a very different, uh, very different message in, in, this, in this, uh, this song or prophecy that he's, that he's giving here. Um, he focuses instead on the unshakable promises of God. It's not so much, it's not so much the, um, the, the tumult that's going to come from Jesus' birth, but it's the unshakable promise that God has Uh, that God has made in the past, and we see him focusing on the faithfulness for God offering salvation in the future. And so Zechariah is looking at at this in a a little bit of a different way. Um, in, In some ways, this prophetic utterance mirrors the the two names that they were sort of working with as far as what should we name this child, right? They wanted to name him Zechariah, the Lord has remembered. Then they end up naming him John, the Lord has been gracious. If you, if you look at this prophecy that Zechariah gives, the first half is all about remembering the promises that God has made. The Lord, the Lord has remembered Right? And we're, the, the Lord is faithful to remember his promises. Right? And then when you get down to um, around verse 76 where it changes, he talks about God offering salvation. The Lord has been gracious. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of interesting that these, these two names go well, go well together um, and, and, and really match what Zechariah is saying, even though the child's name is even though the child's name is John, that doesn't separate the uh, that doesn't separate the, the the narrative from relying on the promises that God has made in the past. Uh, and when you so the the text starts with "Blessed be the the Lord God of Israel." We call it the Benedictus. The word benediction comes from this word, right? Bened, 
It, it just means saying, basically means saying good things, right? Speaking, speaking well over someone. This is where, why they translate it blessed. Um, I just want to point out, though, that that word can be a little bit confusing. Because what exactly does it mean to bless something? Right? If you... Um, almost all the translations translated as blessed just for tradition's sake. The better translation is probably praise. Uh, if, you, if you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew, where it says, you know, blessed are, blessed are uh, the, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, blessed are those who suffer for my name's sake. Right? All those blessed, that's a totally different word from this one. Not even related at all. And it kind of like, I think it confuses us a little bit if we see the same, this exact same word used in two totally different ways. Um, because this blessed is not, you're going to be happy, you're going to be satisfied. He's not, that's, that's not what Zechariah is saying. He's not saying, you know, happy is the Lord of Israel. Um, what this word actually means is, uh, it, it means a lot closer to praise. And, you know, you hate to say it, but the NIV is just about the only, the only English Bible translation that gets it right. Um, and... It's the same verse, it's the same word in verse 64, right? And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Well, it should be probably translated, he spoke, praising God, which I think helps us understand a little bit better what's going on. Because this word blessed is, we sort of know what we mean when we say it. But I think it it's not quite as precise as maybe we would, um, as we would, we would be used to. Because usually when we think about a, a blessing, we think about someone greater, like we saw in Genesis, right? The greater is blessing the lesser. Abraham is blessing Isaac. Um, or you have some instance where the lesser is asking God to bless someone, Okay. But this is, but this, neither one of those ideas really works very well here. So, so let's think about this as a, a song of praise rather than a song of blessing. Pray, praise to the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And right here at the very beginning um, in verse 69, uh, um, Zechariah says, this isn't, a, this isn't really about my son John because his son John is not from the house of David. Uh, Jesus is that mighty salvation from the house of J David, not, not this baby, right? That idea of horn of, um, horn of salvation, raising up a horn of salvation, you see that, that language quite a bit in the Old Testament. Um, and it, it means this, this idea of a horn, is a, it's really a metaphor, it's not a real horn, right? Um, it's, a, it's the idea of the, the, the might or the strength or the ability to do something. And so this is a, a poetic way of saying God is working our salvation. When he were raising up a horn of salvation for us, 
It's saying that God is in the process of working our salvation. He is doing this thing. He's doing this thing for us. And it's coming, he says, from the house of David. It's not coming from the, the line of the priests like Zechariah. Um, so this is, so this, is some, this is something new that, he's, that God is doing here. And then verses 70 through 72, he starts talking about these promises of God. And he kind of seems to sum up in this, in this passage. He seems to sum up all, all the promises of God from uh, like Abraham's covenant with God up through the promises of the post-exilic prophets. He's just like throwing everything, everything in here. He's got, you know, I think he has in mind the original covenant. He's got Moses' covenant. He's got the return from exile. He's got all of these promises that he's saying God is in the process and God is in the process of, of working. Um, and I, where is it? Uh, and he promises to remember his holy covenant in verse 72. I, when I read this, I, I, it struck me. The, the first thing I thought to myself is, he's going to remember his holy covenant, and he doesn't have to. He's promised that he's going to uphold the covenant with the people, but do the people really deserve it? Right? How many times have they failed? Um, the, a covenant's an agreement. Have the people of Israel kept their, their end of the agreement ever, right? But God says in Genesis uh, 22, he says, I have sworn by myself. I am doing this thing not because of your merit, because of my holiness, my righteousness. I'm going to hold to my word, right? So I just, I think it's, it, was, it struck me as I was reading this that all these things that Zechariah is praising God for doing, he doesn't have to do them, right? He does them because he wants to. He does them because of his own namesake. He's doing not because of, um, not because of the people. And then in verse 76, Zechariah moves from remembering God's promises to looking forward. What role is John actually going to have? Who is this child going to be? Um, John is going to be the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of the Most High. Who is the Most High? Jesus. You're, John's going to go before the Lord to prepare his way. Who's the Lord? The, the covenant name of God, the Lord. Uh, that's Jesus. Jesus is the God of Israel, is what Zechariah is um, saying here. So John is not going to be the Messiah, but he's going, to, he's going to have a role in preparing the people for the Messiah. Now, as I was reading this, I thought to myself, uh, you know, like, what, do we, what do I do with this now? You know, I, I, Zechariah's prophecy. How does this, like, what does this mean um, to, you know, to me? Maybe sometimes it's a dangerous question. Try to put yourself in, into the text, right? Um, and, and when I first read this, like, this prophetic utterance, I thought to myself, um, I kind of started to feel a little guilty because I don't pray like this. You know, I thought to myself, like, why don't I spend more time recounting the promises of God and looking forward to what he's going to do? 
Um, and then, I, after feeling guilty for a moment, I very quickly let myself off the hook because I said, this is prophecy. So, you know, I'm not a prophet. God probably doesn't expect me to replicate this uh, on a day-to-day basis. And so I think there is, you know, so of course, like, I don't want any show of hands, but I'm sure many of you are feeling the same way. It's like, mm, I could probably do a better job praying like this, right? Um, God is gracious to us in, in our failings, right? The, the, Spirit, the Spirit prays on our behalf. But as I was reading this, I thought to myself, it occurred to me, like, to, to what extent it, it seemed to be that Zachariah's experience through this whole story, kind of going back to the beginning of, of Luke 1, uh, it kind of seems to mimic the experience of, the, of Old Testament Israel, right? Go back to the beginning of chapter 1. Gabriel shows up, gives a promise to Zechariah, right? Old Testament Israel, God gives the people promises. He gives the people covenants. What's the first thing Zechariah does after God gives him a promise? He disbelieves the promise. What does Old Testament Israel do when God gives them the covenants and the promises? They disbelieve the promises, right? Which causes them to suffer judgment. And Zechariah also suffers a judgment, right? But is that the end? Does God abandon Zechariah? Does God abandon his people? God keeps his promise anyway. Even though he, there's no reason for him to do it other than his own namesake, right? Fulfillment of the promise does not depend on the merit of the person and it does not depend on the merit of the people of Israel, right? Zechariah experiences the blessing of having this new son that he never thought that he would have despite his own disbelief. And we see him follow this instance followed by repentance and praise. God is gracious, following by repentance and praise. In, in some way, we kind of see that mirror of the two names again. God remembers, the Lord remembers, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is, remembers, he is gracious, and the people repent and then praise him. And then, but then we see this cycle throughout the Old Testament repeat over and over and over again, right? Both in individual people's lives, like, say, Jacob or David, or the people as a whole. And then here at the beginning of the New Testament, we see it happen again with one of the, what we would call one of the last of the kind of Old Testament-ish prophets, And Jesus is the only one who breaks this cycle. The next, the very next person we're about to talk about. It's like Luke goes from Luke 1, where he kind of sums up the entire history of the people of Israel in the story of Zechariah, to Luke 2, with the birth of the man who is going to break the cycle, who is not going to... Uh, abandon the promises of God. He's not going to live in disbelief. 
right? Jesus is not just a perfect man, but he also fulfills the role that Old Testament Israel was, was never able to fulfill. Um, if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew is very careful about just laying out all the ways in which the, the story of Old Testament Israel pointed to who Jesus was going to be. Um, and Jesus fulfills on every point what they were not able to, what they were not able to do. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, sinless, without flaw, preaches about the coming kingdom of God, and we kill him for it. And then he is raised from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was that whole time. And allows, the, and allows the rebels who killed him to enter into that kingdom that he had promised ahead of time. That kingdom that he had promised over and over again was not open to anyone who was with, with sin. You won't see the kingdom of God unless you're perfect, he says, as God is perfect. But because of his perfect life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, and because of the graciousness that he offers us in faith, we are able to appropriate for ourselves that righteousness that he has, right? We are able to have that, we are able to have Christ's perfection. Um, So this story of Zechariah, in some ways it feels like it's the story of every single Christian, We don't believe in the promises of God. We don't believe God is who he says he is because of our sin. Because of that, we're under judgment. We're under condemnation. And he shows us grace. The Lord has been gracious, as John's name tells us. He delivers us through Jesus. In verse 69, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He defeats our enemies. Um, who, who are our enemies? Here it's talking in um, verse 71. We shall be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. Uh, there were a lot of people who hated the Old Testament, the people of Old Testament Israel, right? I think Zechariah is referring to them. He could also be referring to the Romans who occupied Judea at this time. Um, but who are our enemies? And, like, I'm my own worst enemy. Romans 7, right? I am my enemy, and Jesus defeats my enemies. He defeats my own wicked heart. He defeats the sin and death in my own life. And Jesus saves us. He saves me so that I can offer a word of praise like Zacharias. Because I'm incapable of doing that until he has done that gracious work in me. All these things we have because of who Jesus is. And so I think we can use Zacharias' prophecy as sort of a model for ourselves, but only through Jesus. Right? 
We can look at the work of God in the past and we can look to the promise of a future culmination of that work. Um, Zechariah looks back to what God did in the Old Testament in this text. He looks back to what God did in the Old Testament, what he promised in the Old Testament. He looks forward to what Jesus is going to do in offering salvation to the people. Um, He doesn't see things, I think, as clearly. We can't blame him for this, right? But he doesn't see things as clearly as we do. Uh, We are living in light of Jesus' actual work. Um, Zechariah doesn't see the the two comings of Jesus. When we're like Zechariah, we're not necessarily going to look back on the promises of the Old Testament exclusively. We will look back on the promises of the Old Testament. But when we look back in praise, we look back on the completed work that Jesus Christ has already done. Right? So we look back to what Jesus has done on the cross. And we, and we realize we're still only in a halfway point here. Um, we're, right now, we're kind of living in that morning twilight of the already not yet. There has been, there has been the, the work has been done and it has been completed, and we're waiting for it to be completed. Um, Jesus has gained the victory over sin and death, but I'm still waiting for that victory over sin and death. Right? Has, has Jesus conquered death? Yes. Amen right? If he tarries, am I going to die? Yes. And so there's a tension there, right? He has conquered death, but I'm still waiting for the fulfillment of that. Um, And so I I like, you know, I think about this idea of about we're sort of living in a morning twilight here. Um, And what Zechariah talks about in verse 78, we're seeing the first fruits of that, but we're still waiting In 78, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We are in the sun, we are in the beginning stages still of the sunrise. When Jesus Christ comes, he lives a life, he dies, he rises again. We are seeing the beginnings of that, you know, what many in the early church referred to as the beginnings of that eighth day. When Jesus rises on on Sunday, a new creation, a new light has broken forth, right? That's why we celebrate uh, every week on, on Sunday, the eighth day of the week, right? Because a new thing has been done. A new dawn is breaking out. And we're still... We're, we're seeing that, that, that sunrise take place right now, but we're still waiting for the fullness to break forth, right? On high to give us light. Um, there are still people in this world who are living in darkness. John the Baptist is dead and gone. Some of us in here might be called upon to pick up where he left off and bring the word of Christ to those people who are still sitting in darkness. 
um, so that they too can see that there is a sunrise on the horizon. Um, Because eventually there will be a last day in which that sunrise will be made manifest and we will all see the blazing glory of Christ Jesus. Um, And that's really what the message of Advent is. Advent is a time in which we look forward to the coming of Christ. Zechariah was celebrating Advent, right? The song, Come Now Long Expected Jesus, was his song. This is essentially what he's singing here. Um, He's looking forward to the consolation of Israel. He says, the consolation of Israel is right around the corner. And my son John is going to be a little bit of a part of that. But he's not the consolation of Israel. Um, We're singing, Come Now Long Expected Jesus as well. But we're waiting for that second coming, right? Come now long expected Jesus was the prayer of the early church. Maranatha, come Jesus. It's still our prayer today. Pray with me as we look forward to his second coming. Father, thank you that you have not left us in our sin, that you have seen fit to fulfill your promises to us, that you have remembered in the past what you said you would do and that you did it, that you have been gracious to us by giving us Jesus, but you have also been gracious to us by giving us faith so that we can understand these things and you have been gracious to us because you have given us this body in which we can worship together in which we can bear one another's burdens and you have been gracious to us because we have a a church that is founded upon your word. And we trust, Father, that you will continue to be gracious to us in the future as we look forward to Christ's second coming in which you will fulfill finally all these things that you have promised to us and that we will be able to see the glory of your light face to face. It's in that day we hope In Jesus' name we pray, amen.